This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, real quick before we get started on the show, I'm just going to talk about Treeline Academy. You've heard me say it. I can't even tell you how many times. Um, Mark Livesey is treelineacademy.net. That's treelineacademy.net. Sign up. Use the promo code PC2020. Save yourself 20 bucks. Can't say it enough. It's awesome. Amazing. Most comprehensive e-scouting course out there. Check it out for yourself. Sign up. Use promo code PC2020. And now let's get to the show. All right. I am sitting here and I am talking to Mike O'Brien. And uh, Mike, would you go ahead and introduce yourself for everybody listening? Hi, I'm Mike O'Brien. I'm a uh, full-time fly fishing guide in northern Utah. I've been a full-time guide for now five years. I've uh, been fly fishing for over 30. 30 years. And that's, yeah. So um, born and raised Utah, transplant. I was, I was born in Utah, um, spent a, probably the first four or five years of my life out here, and then moved and pretty much raised in and around Portland, Oregon, and moved back here about 10, almost 11 years ago now. So still some good fly fishing. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a matter, I tell people it's a matter of scale, right? If you're used to chasing, you know, salmon and steelhead, um, Utah does not have that, right? We've got great trout. Um, some guys chase carp with a fly rod. We have a little bit of bass. Um, some lake trout in the fall you can potentially hook up with on a, on a fly rod as well. But most part, our bread and butter are, are beautiful trout. And we've got you know some nice species out here too. 
So let's kind of, I mean, I'm kind of curious, how, how did your whole fly fishing career start? Like, did you just pick it up as at a young age from time you were a little yes. boy? What, what were you doing? Were so you hitting I trout was, streams? <laughs> I, I grew up, my uncle would always take me fishing. Like his, his Christmas present to me every year would be a couple, two to four um, fishing trips up in the mountains in Oregon with him. Um, and then it, it started just as, you know, spinning, chucking worms and, and eggs and, and spinners. Um, and then when I was a teen, when I was, I guess, 16, 17, he, uh, we went up to a river called the John Day uh, River in Oregon and, uh, and floated it for two days um, and just started hammering bass with, uh, with seven weights. And, uh, and I was hooked. Um, and so then from then on, um, Oregon has bass and a lot of salmon and steelhead, as well as trout, both sea run, cutthroat and rainbow and browns. And, um, and so I just, I started, I got the bug because it's, it's so fun. That's pretty cool. So when, yeah. when you hook into like some of those like sea run salmon, what, uh, yes. How how big of a rod? What are you using? I mean, that's got to be some seriously heavy tackle. Eight, eight to ten weights. Um, so I, I think for steelhead, the lightest I've gone is an eight weight usually, um, because they they're sea run rainbow trout, and they're the smallest of those fish typically. Um, they they you can hook into like a a monster sometimes, but you're typically looking between seven to twelve seven to 13 pounds, um, on a steelhead. Um, and they can put you into backing in two to three seconds on, on <laughs> strong drag. Um, and then you've got coho, which, or also, which are silver salmon, right? Coho salmon. Um, and they can be about the same in terms of weight, um, maybe a little bit heavier, but, um, but they will run and, so, and you need a nine or a 10 weight for silvers and for Chinook King salmon. Uh, if you don't have a nine or a 10 weight, you're going to get, uh, you're going to get busted off or, or spooled and then, you know, breaking a rod. So, so yeah. Yeah. So when, when, when you're pulling them in or reeling them in, are you sh- yeah. just stripping line back as you're doing it? You're yeah, not trying to reel them, are you? Oh, you can't strip them. No, no you can't strip them in. No, you have to reel them because. If, if they decide, cause you're in, you're in rivers with good, heavy current, current that such that if you stand in knee deep water, um, it's hard for you to keep standing up. Okay. okay. So these, these coastal rivers are ripping current. Um, and so if they decide, screw you, I'm going to turn down river, um, and run. If you, if you tried to strip them in your hands would you'd be blown up with, uh, with line burn hmm. or, you know, or you'd get that caught around your reel or around your rod. And then your tackle, your, your rods blowing up, right. Cause that friction, there's not enough time. So, um, when I was a kid drag on reels, wasn't heavy enough to slow them down enough. So we learned to palm the reel. Okay. Um, and so if you had one with, with a decent amount of drag, but a big fish would take it, you would still have to palm that reel a little bit to slow them down until they turned back. And then you could begin fighting them in a lot of times, <laughs> like in, 
a river runs through it, you're you're running down, you know, fifty to a hundred yards of riverbank um, until they kind of decide I'm done running. You're just hanging on for dear life at that point. <laughs> That's awesome, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> that sounds it's amazing, a riot, man. Like a serious it's a riot. rush, especially like oh, it's if you're it's new insane. to that. Like I, I feel like oh, if you were new to that, yeah, and and that was your first experience fly fishing, you would have you're a done. lack of appreciation for other things. Yeah, no, <laughs> it it's there's a reason why. I mean, I I'm outside. I was after I we did our little bio my little bio too. I was thinking I'm outside probably 300 days plus a year. Um, I can fish every day of the year here in Utah, um, and I can fish all over the world, right? And I don't make a ton of money. If I were to try and hunt 300 days a year plus, <laughs> you know, you have to have an obscene amount of money to be able to support that habit. <laughs> right i mean it's it's just not quite the same so the adrenaline rush i mean even when i have a 17 18 inch trout on light on a four weight rod um and he's he's ripping line it, it's it's a rush you know that that it it taps into something primal within us that is just you can't you don't experience it living in a city right you don't experience <laughs> it in daily life you don't experience it unless you're outside in nature, truly, you know, fighting with a wild animal, which is what it, it which is what it is. It's, it's exhilarating. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I don't understand the people that only hunt or the people that don't or only fish. Like to yeah. me, it's, it's an all inclusive, immersive experience that like, if you don't tap into one or the other, you're missing out on part of like a primal connection like like you're Absolutely. saying like you're missing out on on the full full experience of the outdoors and it's just yeah it's crazy it, and it, it, a part of it is i think what what our society over the last couple decades has lost is or over the last couple generations are outdoorsmen right <laughs> like i'll take people out on the river i'm like oh um this is cut by beaver oh look there's a mink they're like, that's a beaver. No, that's a muskrat. You know, these are, you know, like close. It's a rodent, right? Just a third of the size, right? These are not the same things. Um, but people don't understand like, Hey, what's that track? Oh, that's, that's a raccoon. That's mink, right? These are, these are things that you and I just have learned over years and don't take for granted. Like I, I appreciate it every day. I get to look at these mountains every day. And my office, you can't beat it, right? It's yeah. spectacular. It's, it's humbling. Um, and when the weather is just, when Mother Nature decides to, to turn it up a notch, it's still spectacular. You just have to be prepared. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, and it, it even goes deeper than that, like you were saying, with just like the outdoorsman thing is a lot of people, skills that we just take for common sense these days because oh, of the amount yeah. of time that we probably spent outside or done yeah. things it it's lacking it's missing it's not something that's there anymore for a lot of people and we take yeah. it for granted that you know people have the same knowledge and that can get you into trouble sometimes oh yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> absolutely i i uh 3 4 years ago 
I hiked the Narrows in Zion's National Park, which is a pretty famous like slot canyon. And a river, the Virgin River runs right through the middle of it. And it's spectacular. And I, I had a friend who um, drew the permit because it's lottery based. We went in the second week in November and it's in Southern Utah. The high that day maybe was 50 degrees, but we're 300 feet down this canyon. And we saw the sun on our backs for 10 minutes that day. And I didn't realize how uh, unprepared the people in the party were until two gals, one of them my 18-year-old niece and the other my buddy's wife went in over their heads after dark. And then I was like, okay, where's, where's your extra clothes? No, I'm wearing every stitch I've got. Okay, well, <laughs> well, what have you eaten today? I haven't eaten. I'm not hungry. Okay, well, your water bladder is full. What have you drunk? Well, I haven't had a sip. Okay, we got a problem, right? Then it goes from <laughs> a, a crazy fun experience to one like we are, we're on the clock. We still have three and a half hours to go before we, we get to the, the parking lot with no satellite reception, no cell service, right? And there's only one way out. So it gets common. Common sense is, I think now, ought to be a misnomer, right? <laughs> this is just, because it's not common anymore. Yeah. People don't think about these things. As a result of that trip, like I take, I take clients, one of the fun, really fun things that I do is I take them over 10,000 feet in elevation for four days and we backpack and fly fish remote lakes and streams in the summer. But I have a full gear list of bare minimums that they have to hit. And if they don't make, if they don't invest in that, that's fine. You're just not going on the trip because yeah. I'm not going to, I've got full trauma kits, you know, from Fieldcraft with me. Like I've, I've got a Garmin in reach, right? I'm prepared for everything except for your unpreparedness and stupidity. <laughs> right and if you make a bad mistake that's okay we can we we can make contingencies and we can we can get you to safety and to help but if you just if you just decide oh no i'll i'll bring a blanket instead of a sleeping bag or this tent you know is fine or if you cut corners uh, mother nature doesn't care right yeah. it's <laughs> she and and darwin i think is all too lacking in our society. You know, we need a little more Darwinism. I think, uh, yeah, modern conveniences have made it easier for people to, to, to definitely survive. <laughs> Beyond, yeah, yeah, what they would have a century ago, hey, right? Siri, how do I stay alive right now? <laughs> yeah. But, I'm sorry, yeah. you don't have an internet connection. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> now what do I do? Yeah. Roll um, up and die. <laughs> So what kind of fishing are you, you know, primarily doing every day on the rivers right there in Utah then? So I do, um, we do fly fishing. I do fly fishing almost exclusively. I would say over 99% of it's fly fishing. Um, most of th the most successful technique would be nymphing. Um, that I would probably do, say I do at least 90% of the time. Um, and nymphing is taking the bugs that the fish are regularly eating subsurface to right where they're hanging out, which is normally right on the bottom of the riverbeds. Um, and that we have a few different methods for 
you know, getting there, but it's, uh, it's a highly successful technique. Um, when fish are looking up, then, you know, I grab a couple dry rods and we'll fish on the top. Um, when it's, um, when they're pre-spawn or when the, the fish begin spawning, we will probably start throwing streamers and, uh, and maybe some egg patterns too, to, you know, get some pretty aggressive, uh, bucks or hens to, to play with us. So what, what do the egg patterns look like? I've never actually seen that technique. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm from the Midwest, so it's a little yeah. bit different here. So, <laughs> uh, so they're, they're little, you tie on a little bit of, of colored yarn, like neon or kind of pastel yarn. Um, and typically it'll be a little bit lighter shade and then a touch darker shade just in the center. So it looks like it's been a just fertilized egg or an egg with an embryo in it. Um, if they're spawning and they're on the reds, which is their spawning beds, um, a lot of times we'll cast just below or to the side of those. Um, and those will, um, those will trigger an aggressive response because they don't want other eggs to be successful. And so it's just typically a little bit of, of yarn that looks like an egg. Um, and it's, it's, it's fun. I mean, they get, they get mad. Interesting. So does the egg actually, it's, it's not a floating egg. It's like subsurface or subsurface. So, so we put it, um, on, so we have, we use a, a rig, a kind of a, a system called the Provo bounce rig. And so at the bottom are some weights to get the flies down. And then off the main line, we tie a couple tags with flies. And then we usually will run an indicator up top. And that indicator is what pulls down river the weights and the flies. And then the weights act as ballast or to slow it down. So um, one thing that's that a lot of people don't understand because they're, they're not out in nature is that the most heavy current from a river is right on the top. That's where the river current is pushing the fastest. Where it's pushing the least is at the very bottom, right? So if you have something that is, let's say um, the top of the river is running at five knots, okay? Uh, the bottom of the river might be only running at two or two and a quarter. And so you need to pace it so that it's not screaming by like, um, well, like a motorcycle going down the highway at 110, right? You want it to be going with the flow of traffic and the flow of everything else so it looks natural. When it's natural, that's when you get, you know, a typical feeding response and they take it and typically hook right in the corner of their mouth or right in the nose. And, uh, and we get to play them and most of the time we let them go. Nice. That reminds yeah. me of that meme <laughs> that heard like the gif or whatever on, on social media that you see lately <laughs> talking about how the fly fishermen and wait a minute. So you guys catch all these fish and you just let them go all day long. Like, <laughs> all day long. Yeah. Um, I, I will say, so the Provo River, I was part of the, the, our DNR study last fall on the counting of the fish. And right now we have over 5,000 fish per mile. And they consider a catchable fish or a fish that we counted as being six inches and over. So typically a healthy river has three, maybe 4,000. 5,000 is absurd. So, so you almost they, need people to They're start. encouraging us uh, to, 
you know, if clients are wanting to, like I will absolutely bonk and, and gut fish for clients to have them take out on the river because we just have so many now that, um, that it's stunting our big fish from growing even bigger with all the competition. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm happy to do that. When we go up into the high lakes, um, we're absolutely eating, you know, what we catch. Um, and a lot of time those are, those are brook trout. Um, sometimes they're cutthroat. Uh, sometimes they're grayling. So are those, uh, pretty much native or do you think some of those at some point have been stocked? So there are, we have native cutthroat trout in Utah, um, of two different varieties, Bonneville, Yellowstone. Oh, I guess in Colorado, um, in Eastern Utah. Uh, the brown trout, the rainbow trout, the grayling, the brook trout, those have all been planted over the last, you know, 150 years. So um, browns were the first to get, the first trout to get implanted here. And while they're not a true native, they are, um, they're regulated, you know, just like the rainbows. So you can keep fish under 15 inches on the, most of the rivers that I, that I fish on with clients. Uh, but anything over that, you grip and grin and, and let them go. Yeah. So what's the rules of thumb as far as, I mean, you want to keep your hands wet, right? Keep them, keep them low in the water to keep yes. them. Yes. I know they're a lot more sensitive. Oxygenated. Yeah. They're a lot yeah. more sensitive than our, our like our, our small mouth or large mouth. You could sit them, take yeah, them, yeah. hold them by the lip, flip them yeah. into the water. Yeah. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. No. So they are, they are a little more delicate. They're sensitive to temperature. Um, right now is the, is the warmest time of year for their, for their water temps. Um, but, uh, wet hands is imperative. You also don't want to trap or, or put pressure on their gill plate. That flexing of the gill plate helps them stay calm, but it also keeps their gills not damaged, right? I mean, it's, you don't want to damage the gills at all. Um, and you don't want to squeeze the crap out of them. Um, so you just kind of cradle them when you, when you lift them up. Um, what a lot of people don't do from the videos that I watch, um, is they don't turn the fish up river number one, right? Cause that's how they breathe water through the mouth over the gills. Um, and a lot of times you'll see them push the fish and then pull them back, right? Um, pulling them doesn't help them breathe. If you hold them in that current near the top of the water, where we just discussed is the fastest, you know, current that will help break down that lactic acid they built up in the fight and help them recover faster and they're able to swim off with much lower mortality now if it's warmer or if that you've if it was an absolute monster and it took a long time it might take you a while to get them revived to where they want to swim off on their own what you don't want to do is you don't want to just set them in the water and let them go because if they're too warm or if they're too exhausted odds are they'll die so right like they'll so, just end up hit, hitting a bunch of rocks or whatever and yeah and yeah. and they'll just turn upside down and float down the river and, and it's game over um because they just haven't had enough time to recover and break down all the all the stress and lactic acid you put in their body on the fight so um a lot of times if you hold them there sometimes it could take a couple minutes but rotating them a little bit side to side gently will help them to to um to realize oh wait i'm not swimming here this isn't me and they'll they'll 
they'll take off and then find a nice big rock to kind of sit behind and, and kind of lick their wounds. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah. Now that we've covered that, say you're keeping it. What are you doing? Yeah. Are you doing like, are you, you gilling it? Are you cutting, bleeding it? Yeah. What are you doing? So I, so growing up in Oregon and fishing a lot of ocean, um, I just, any fish I'll cut their gills. So I bonk them on the noggin, right? So that when you rotate them on their side, that eye goes straight up and it is an aspect down to let you know they're knocked out. That way, when you cut their gills kind of at that apex at the bottom of the U, right? Um, they're not thrashing and I'll put them on a little willow stringer like I did when I was a kid. Um, and, uh, and then once they've bled out then I go back through, I cut out, uh, their gills and, and remove all the guts and, and the fish here. So one big misnomer with trout is that brown trout taste gross. They taste amazing. You know, a lot of times that meat is, is like orangish, almost like a light salmon or like a char, you know, like a brook trout almost. Um, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful meat. Um, and a lot of it depends on what they've been eating. But trout don't live in ugly places, right? They need clean, clear water. They need cold temps to survive. And they taste great. So, you know, just like with any fish, you know, the worst thing you can do is overcook them, right? Um, but they, uh, they taste great. So I always gill them. Uh, I always cut the gills. Um, and then let them, let them bleed out and yeah, toss the, toss the guts and, and gills back into the river and take them home. So when you take them home, what's the next step? Where are we, uh, where are we going from there? Are you doing anything so, special before the freezer? It depends sometimes. Um, so typically I don't freeze. I don't, I don't need to freeze trout. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> cause I, I mean, every month of the year, any day of the week I can go out and, and and uh, be successful if i would say if you um if you do end up freezing them you might want to put them in like a light salt bath for 10 to 15 minutes um that will help that meat to stay a little more moist when you uh when you slack them out when you thaw them um and it also helps to protect uh that that meat from you know uh, the freezer. So, um, but when I do it, sometimes I'll smoke them. Um, so I'll put them in a, in a salt bath for half an hour, maybe before I smoke them. Um, or I just throw them on the grill or the skillet with some butter and lemon and a little bit of oil, some seasoned salt. I, I like trout really simple. Yeah, no, that sounds delicious. We used to catch, uh, rainbows there was a place that mm -hmm. used to actually stock them so i mean they were farm raised but uh sure my buddy and i would go there and i can't i can't remember what it was the guy would charge but uh he was stocking three pounders and four pounders that's how he was buying oh, wow. them and stocking them they yeah. were big trout <laughs> so yeah. we would go and we'd catch these pond trout in the, i mean it, it was a small lake really but we called it ponds um and I think he had a limit of like three, but I think he paid like $10 for the day. So oh, wow. <laughs> the guy was like, when we would go and limit out, <laughs> and then they were finicky, 
but we you know yeah. work at it a little bit figure out what they're eating sometimes maybe even put some like uh cat food or dog food on a hook and and catch them sure. because they were used to feeders and uh we would limit out and so we'd limit out on these fish and the guy was absolutely losing money because he'd even clean them for us before we left oh wow <laughs> so three fish in an hour, paid her $10 each or whatever it was. <laughs> and we'd take them and go smoke them. And we'd, uh, you know, yeah. just lay like a slice of lemon real thin, lay them on the smoker, yeah. some salt, and smoke them. And, man, yeah. other than the bones, they were delicious. But, oh, yeah. You, you know, uh, do you ever do anything to try and take, like, I've heard if you take a real sharp chef knife, you can uh-huh. actually slice, if you lay it flat open with your two halves of the fish, mm-hmm. if you slice down the spinal column, perfectly Four in the morning, join me chef jean-paul bourgeois and the whole crew here at duck camp dinners every monday at 8 p.m eastern on waypoint tv when you go out there and the fish are where you think they are any one of these casts could be the bite it's the most exciting fishing that i know right here at hawk's cave Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. Mm-hmm. That you can actually pull out almost the entire uh, set of bones all on the, them. All the pin bones. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can? That's absolutely true. Okay. Uh-huh. I've never done that. I've always picked around yeah, them. Yeah, so but... the... The pin bones on a, on a big trout, let's say he's 18 inches, okay, an 18-inch trout, a nice trout, uh, bigger than skillet size. Um, he may only have pin bones that, that come out maybe two or three inches down from his collar. So otherwise, they won't, they won't pull off unless you're filleting them, right? A lot of my clients from the south, they'll fillet like six, eight-inch trout. And like, leave the skin on, but they'll fillet them. I'm like, <laughs> they're like, well, we fillet everything. Like we f- fillet crappie, we fillet uh, eight inch trout. It's fine. I'm like, well, okay, that's I guess one way to do it, right? But then you got to grab your little tweezers yeah. and pick out all those silly bones. Yeah. Um, I don't unless it's honestly, it, it, if I were to catch fish, I'm trying to think if there's any. I guess if I'm ocean fishing, I will I will pick out I'll fillet like rockfish, but otherwise, I mean, most of the prep on freshwater fish is all like whole fish prep types scenarios, right? And then once they're cooked, you can take them off the bone super easily because it just peels right off when they're just right. Nice. I didn't think about that like that. That's kind yeah. of a, a good way to do it. Yeah. I mean, around here, any of our fish, you kind of fillet them out too, mostly pan right. fish. Something, you know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, yeah, yeah. you know. No, I but, get it. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> I get it. Those sunfish. Yeah. Right? Those warm water. Yeah. Except for those. I mean, like my dad's been doing it lately to where uh, scale them, got them, scale them, uh-huh. cut the head off, cut the tail off, and pretty much cook them whole like that. And it works pretty good too. Then they just pull yeah. right off the bones. Yeah. Right. Otherwise, yeah. you end up getting oh, a few you know yeah no it's great and you know i think it builds character right just like with you know waterfowling you're gonna end up biting into some shot one you know here and there 
<laughs> I try to avoid part, that. <laughs> part of the program, right? Well, now everyone that... tries to, but I mean, I'll run, I'll run duck, you know, through my grinder and I'll get little like six shot or something on teal or, or maybe even a mallard. Like how did this little tiny pellet get in here? It, it makes its way through my, through my, um, plates and I end up biting into, you know, a finished sausage. I'm like, what the, who put this in there? So right? with that being said, a lot of people are switching to like tungsten and different things. And, you know, at least right. with lead, you bite into it and it's not going to break a tooth. Soft. You, yeah. <laughs> you bite. And I've bitten into a lead pellet and you spit it out. But like, yeah. Can you imagine biting into a piece of tungsten or something like that? No. Oh, my goodness. No, that's, <laughs> well, not only biting into it, but I mean, if I shot and missed a bird with a tungsten shell, I'd be like, well, there goes five bucks. Well, right. <laughs> it's it's not like I'm shooting an elk, right, where I'm like, OK, that, that two and a half, three bucks per per round is is justifiable right when you're shooting <laughs> tungsten at birds dude you're going you know you're you're going through a lot of shells that's uh i mean some states require it now really oh yeah oh man so, like i had no idea leadless it's it's right for when you're doing birds and uh, i think even so like illinois i believe it either has to be copper plated lead for doves because we were just you were talking about doves just right, right, know, right. before we jumped on I believe for doves, it either has to be uh, non-lead, so it's either uh, tungsten oh, or, or copper-plated. And I don't even know if they'll allow copper-plated lead anymore. It might actually have to be really? like, tungsten or something like that. Yeah. Or bismuth. Bismuth, yeah. 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 At least for doves. And can you imagine that, though? Because doves, how many no. shells? Imagine how many shells. Oh. I remember when I was a kid. I used to, my dad used to let me go out with a 410, which is kind of crazy anyway, because right. now you're, it's like trying to shoot a duck with a BB gun, you know, right, <laughs> it's the right. same concept, totally. single shot, totally. and I'm over yeah. there just break barrel, boom, boom, left and right with a 410 shotgun, and I'd go through four yeah. boxes of 410, well, back then it was cheap, and you reloaded yourself, can you imagine doing that? Sure. <laughs> doing that no, now? dude. And with no. tungsten on top of it. No, that's mental. <laughs> That's mental. Yeah. I tie flies with tungsten beads, <laughs> and every time I have to place a big order, I'm like, "Are you kidding me? This is this is crazy. There's no. <laughs> it shouldn't cost this much. It's not, you it's know, not gold. <laughs> yeah, it's not gold. I'm not. I'm not making jewelry over here, right? These are <laughs> fish are going to eat these. I'm shooting this at birds, and it cost me how much? You know, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. I don't get it. Yeah. So I got to ask you, um, like some more techniques, like you talked a little bit yeah. about using the, uh, the, what would you call the method with the, with the, the Provo bounce rig, Provo nymphing? Bounce rig. Yeah. Nymphing. Yeah. So what yeah. else? I mean, like different times of year, you said you use streamers and stuff like that. Is that now like, uh, like later in the year you use the streamers? Yeah. It's like so cold? as the water temps cool down, um, so fish are very opportunistic. Number one, number two, they, they have FOMO more than people do, right? Fear of missing out. <laughs> and so if they see a big opportunity that looks realistic, they need to capitalize on it because uh, number three is they have a real big scarcity mentality and they don't know when their next meal is coming, even though they're basically on a conveyor belt of bugs, right? As the water gets colder, there's less bugs in the water moving and their metabolism slows down too. This triggers a need to build up stores to make it through the winter, 
So as they, as the water temps cool, as the sun get, the hours of the day get shorter, it triggers a real need and fear that they have to feed. And so ripping streamers in the fall, um, casting them out and having them come right in front of their face, um, you can have fish like aggressively chase a fly 15 to 30 plus feet as it's coming by them before they hammer it. Um, it's really fun. Or you might have them kind of nip at it a little bit and just get the very like last half inch where there's no hook. And so you just keep strip, 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 and you feel these little nips. And then you'll feel a monster take when they commit because it's pissing them off um, that they're not quite getting it. And so they'll speed up and just hammer it. Um, that Those are probably the most aggressive strikes when you're fly fishing for trout. Um, when you're fly fishing for anything, really. I mean, you could, whether it's salmon, or um, in the saltwater, you know, redfish or bonefish or permit, most of those that that triggers that predatorial response that they want to chase and that they have to eat it whole because it's not like they they've got time to take bites, right? So they they eat the whole thing in one in one gulp. Nice. So when yeah. you when you're using those streamers, is it like a neutral yeah. buoyancy streamer? It's kind of like just kind of under the surface going by, you know, at a certain depth, are you setting depth somehow or are you? So that's a great question. So I have, when I'm running streamers, I typically run them with two different rods and I'll have one rod with a sink tip, a heavy sink tip line to go through deep runs, deep holes, um, or like at the top of a run into a hole so that it drops down and we can strip it across. Um, that is very successful. When I have the heavy sink line, the streamer is unweighted. Okay. Uh, the other way that I'll do it is I will run a floating line and then I will have a very heavy streamer. So the difference is when I'm stripping a, the weighted line, the, the sinking line, and I strip it, the streamer comes along at the same depth in yeah. the water. He doesn't continue to sink. Even if I'm stripping across current, that line stays down when I begin stripping. It stays at that same depth. So it looks like this fish is just trying to get away, which is more naturally how they will respond um, when a little bait fish is getting chased. They'll try and, and run either at the bottom of the river or at that same wave, at that same height in the water column to escape the predator. The other option you have is using that floating line on more shallow beds or flats uh, with a weighted streamer that gets down so that when you strip it, it comes up and then drops back down and looks like um, not, not as natural, but like, oh, there's something wrong with this mm -hmm. fish. It may be injured. It may be um, dying or it's just acting off, right? right. And Darwinism in the water is <laughs> just as strong as it is you know, in the rest of mother nature. Yeah. And so they see something weak and they take it out of the call out of the, you know, out of the gene pool. Yeah. So, um, it, you kind of want, when you're working a river, um, most of the rivers, well, all the rivers here are tailwaters, meaning there is, they are fed from a dam. 
So there's nothing, no big rivers here are free flowing because we're in the second driest state in the U.S. And precip is, is, you know, we, we pray for water like every day of the year. We don't have enough. And with more people moving in, um, we always seem to be in a drought because there's a higher demand than ever before. So all these are fed from dams. And so we have to, you know, hit these different riffles with flats and then these deep runs with deep holes. And so you need kind of, you don't need two rigs, but if you really want to be successful with that technique, having two separate rods for that purpose is really helpful. Yeah. So your second technique, the one with the floating line with the weighted minnow. Yeah. So you get that that flicker that makes it look like either an injured bait fish or something's wrong with it. That's typically the technique that I actually use for fishing for smallmouth in the rivers and creeks around here. And it it does, it triggers that predatory response. It's like, oh, I'm going to take that one out. Something you don't belong here. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And it works pretty good. So it's either Klausers or like a Murdich that we use. Yeah. And and it works works pretty good. And what I find weird though is like, especially even if the water is milky from like a heavy rain and it's moving faster, some reason white just really triggers that response. I don't know if it's because it looks so similar to a bait fish or something like that. Yes. but well, and it also the contrast too, I think is a big part of it, right? So their lateral lines pick up movement in the water and they have way better vision than, than I, than I understand. But that contrast is something that, um, that they're like, oh, maybe they see the shadow off of the white, or maybe they just see a little bit more of that extra movement, right? If you, if the yeah. water's chocolate milk and you throw something brown, good luck yeah. right but even in clear Unless water gotta, yeah that's yeah, what yeah. i was gonna say yeah. is even in clear water that white just seems to outperform anything else it's crazy yeah and and some of it's some of it's species specific i know here in utah white can be really effective um on super sunny days darker is way better and you don't want a whole lot of flesh you want it dark you know we have a lot of sculpin in these waters and these little sculpin there's nothing sexy or attractive or, you know, they're, they're these little, they're, they're ugly and they're dark and they're brown and like dark brown and dark green. Um, but every year I'll find a couple trout who have died because they've tried to eat a sculpin that's too big for their mouth (laughs) and, and their spines get stuck, you know, cause they're super spiny little fish. Right. And their spines will get stuck in their uh in their mouth or the spines off those pectoral fins and and it gets lodged and they can't they can't regurgitate them which is their only defense mechanism against you know overeating um and they end up they end up dying that's crazy you never i've never yeah. seen a small mouth or a large mouth die from that. <laughs> yeah no no those bucket mouths man those are huge yeah I've seen him eat a baby duck before. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, that's awesome. That's <laughs> awesome. But yeah. So um, if, if somebody's coming out to Utah and they want to go fly yeah. fishing, like what would your advice to them be? You know? Um, yeah. So if you have a good familiarity with fly fishing, I would say call a fly shop, um, spend a few dollars on some, uh, on some flies and get 
get their input. Um, the best fly shop in the U S is 15 minutes from my house. Um, and I don't say that's not hyperbolic. It's the, the shop is fly fish food. Um, the U S competitive fly fishing team captain is actually at that shop. Um, these guys have dozens, if not hundreds of flies each to their, you know, to their name that are marketed under their names. Um, and they're, they know what's going on. Um, they're awesome. Um, if not, um, if, if you don't bring your own gear, then hire a guide and, um, and, and be specific with the type of experience you would like to have. If you're looking to just have fun, awesome. If you want to learn great, if you want to get away from people, that's going to be a different experience than, you know, someone who says, Hey man, I just want to have some fun. I want to relax and get out on the water for four hours. Great. We can do that too. Right. Yeah. But, um, be, try and be a little specific with the type of experience you would like to have. And if you have zero experience, then expectations are low, right? You want to know if it's, if this is a, a passion or if it's some, a hobby you'd like to, to pick up. I, I love to take beginners because, um, I can begin building a foundation of skills that could take you from, you know, fly fishing in Belize to Alaska. So it doesn't really matter um, what your experience level is, as long as you're just willing to listen. Um, yeah, it, it's fun. It's amazing. Yeah. So I got to ask you when you're looking for, like, I, I understand that when you're in your own home territory, you obviously know mm -hmm. all the spots, the, you know, the, the currents, the ripples, the yes. pools, all that kind of stuff. Say you're going somewhere else. What yeah. are you looking for? One that's going to hold the fish or, or different types of terrain. I've got a buddy that says yeah. that he can actually e-scout and find some pretty good spots on the river to fly fish. So what, what sure. are you looking for? What are you doing? So um, it depends on time of year. Uh, so we went up to Alaska. We spent a week and a half in Alaska in May. Um, and I fished, um, a couple rivers, um, uh, before they all got blown out cause it was too hot. But what I look for is I look for, um, consistency. I want, if, if there's a good run and it could be anywhere from 18 inches to 18 feet deep, but I want a little bit of consistency. I like some structure in the river. So being able to see some boulders or some eddies where fish might congregate um if it's a smaller river seeing foam lines where where food will vector and get pushed um is a great indicator of feeding lanes for fish um and then i like to uh, i like to spend a little bit of time kind of surveying this sounds nerdy but checking out like the bugs in the river um and so i'll I'll turn over rocks. I have a little, um, like it's, what is it? It's a painting like mesh, um, like little, uh, mitt that I will like kick up rocks above me and then have that in the water below and then look up and see what's on that mesh and is trapping what kind of bugs so that I know how to target them. 
Um, <clears throat> and then the most fun thing is to just sit there five, 10, 20 minutes and see if you see fish activity, whether in the water or on top of the water to begin, you know, developing a plan and then figuring out, okay, if they're eating on the top, then that's a no brainer. We're going to go dry flies, right? And let's, let's see if we can watch them take the fly, which is exhilarating, right? <laughs> if you haven't done that before, that's, I mean, you talk about anticipation, right? Seeing the fish coming up and taking all these bugs and then you cast one right in that lane and waiting for that. And then once they take it, waiting for them to get the hook deep enough and turn their bodies back down before you set. That's yeah. I mean, I hold my <laughs> breath, you know, now when I do it, yeah. right. I'm like, come on, come on, come on, come on. I mean, it's just, it's so fun. So, um, it just depends. Streamers can be effective in any scenario with, with damn near any fish when properly presented presentation, I would say is, is the first major hurdle that most people don't understand. If it doesn't look natural, then it doesn't matter who you are or what you're throwing. It's not gonna, it's not gonna attract a fish to take it. Yeah. So presentation is key. So I've never dry flied. I, uh, so, whoa, well, okay. So all the trout around here don't, yeah. they don't take them anyway because they're, they're pond, you know, raised and released right. fish right. that they're not used to, you know. But your smallies do, right? Yeah. I've just, it's not that effective. Like I've never okay. had the opportunity. Most of the time it's streamers. I've, occasionally it's okay. like a popper, you know? So yeah. like, so well, there's. poppers sit on right on top. Yeah. Right? But it's not the same as I, like uh, no, lifting that same. fly off the water, setting it back yeah. down and letting it, yeah. you know, like it's skimmering across the top of the water. Yeah. There, there's none of yeah. that. And I've always, <laughs> I've always wanted to, I've never done it. So like, oh, dude, that's, it's, that's one it's thing. It's magic. Yeah. That's one thing I'd like to try and maybe focus on more, even around here, just to try and get the technique yeah. down for sure. But yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and out here in Utah, I would tell you, I see the most bug activity and fish sipping on the top in the evenings. So that's when all the osprey have kind of gone home and gone to bed, right? So they don't have to worry as much about predation from above. And they just, you'll see them just start sipping, sipping, sipping. Um, when a fish starts looking up, he's going to probably look up for a while until something changes that behavior. Whether it's the bugs start hatch, stop hatching or he gets spooked. But um, it's, depending on, on who you listen to and what you read, it happens only 6% of the time when they feed, that they feed on the top. So it's, wow. it's, it's when you get a great day dry flying, it's absolutely magical. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me want to do it even more. Because I've even oh. been toying with the idea of actually like dry flying for panfish. So, oh, yeah. So like taking like a three or four weight rod or something. Yeah. And, and then just like, uh, like right on the edge of like a, some reeds on a weed bed or some uh -huh. structure. Yeah. And just yeah. like keep tapping it with a fly or a little spider, yeah. or, you know, come up yeah. with something that's like a floating spider. Absolutely. And just yeah. see what that does. I don't know. I've been toying or, with it. You know, I'll tell you, a flying ant yeah. is something too that you guys have a ton of. Yeah. Right? <laughs> that works. I mean, what little fish isn't going to just crush that? Right? And plus the Super sunfish fun. fight 
quite a bit too. So <laughs> Oh yeah. 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 So when one of them gets it, they're like, Hey, what did you get? And you see like four or five of them chasing him. Like, Hey man, what the hell? So yeah, yeah. that's awesome. So that's kind of my, my idea. I haven't actually played around with it yet, but that's like my next venture of trying awesome. to fly fish. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's, that's a great idea. I love that. <laughs> So Love if, uh, if people want to reach out to you, they want to uh, maybe ask you some questions or anything like that, yeah. where do they do that? And where do they get a hold of you if they want to actually come out and fish with you and all that good stuff? Yeah, thanks. Um, so I'm on Instagram. My, uh, my business one is Fly Fish With Me Utah, um, which is a little long, but it's easy to remember. Fly Fish With Me Utah. Um, and then there's, you know, in that bio, you can see my personal page there as well. It's also public. Uh, my web page is under construction, but there's a landing page with, I think, prices and my phone number. Um, that's flyfishwithmeutah.com. Okay. Uh, and yeah, so I'm, I'm out every month of the year fly fishing. And uh, yeah, I love it. So, I mean, if somebody wants to book, are they able to kind of book that or do they need to book pretty far out? Uh, in the summer. So we're just winding down for my busiest season, or busiest time of the year, busy season. Um, but now I will tell you, so summer is really busy for me. Uh, and I'll do typically two trips a day from mid June. Like I was telling you through August. Um, now, uh, I kind of transition. I, I, as we discussed, I do a fair bit of hunting as well. So if you're coming out and you know, then hit me up. Um, November is a great time because that's when the fish begin, the brown trout begin to spawn. Um, and I love, I love that they're so aggressive and so, you know, just mad and territorial. <laughs> um, and then probably you didn't ask me this, but I'm going to tell you, okay. my favorite month to fish is probably April. Um, and the reason I love, I love April is because the first big hatches start coming off. So if, if we get the right conditions, you could have an absolutely epic day dry flying, um, or an epic day nymphing. Um, the weather in the Rockies here is always changing in the spring. So it could be sunny and 55, or it could be snowing, or it could be, you know, cloudy. It just depends. Um, but I love that time of year because that's when the fish are like, Oh, Hey, we've got more sun and they start getting really optimistic and start getting aggressive and warming up to the idea that they need to eat a lot. And so they begin really heavily feeding. Um, and you can see the water literally boiling, uh, as bugs begin hatching in the spring. Nice. That's awesome. So, uh, yeah. I got to ask you then what's your, what's your favorite species to actually go after them <sighs> on a fly rod. Yeah. Ooh, um, uh probably steelhead steelhead are are sea run rainbow trout um they're they're difficult to fish um and when you get one on like i told you right before we hopped on it's not uncommon to have a steelhead take you into backing in two or three seconds so when you hook them when when you're doing that are you are you still using a, like a carbon rod or are you using a, yeah. a glass rod to try and get that extra strength no so um i grew up fishing with a glass rod 
right? Um, but now the carbon rods are so strong. Um, I don't, I don't know that. I the challenge with a glass rod on a bigger river is that there's so much give, right? They are stronger, but they also flex so much that if you're having to punch through wind and you've got a he big heavy glass rod. You're working four times as heavy, as hard yeah, as you need to, weight. right? It's it's just a slog. And then if you do that three, four days in a row, right? It you're you're getting beat up. So a, a nine eight nine weight, um, or like a stout, like a big heavy seven weight, like switch rod or or spay rod for for steel. It is super fun uh, because once they take it, man, it's it's game on and it's. It's nuts. Awesome. No, that's yeah. cool. Mike, I appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing. It's been awesome, and, Luke. And having fun yeah. talking. So uh, tr truly a pleasure. And uh, like I said, so much. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. When you come out to Utah, hit me up. I will do. <laughs> awesome. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device. One of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.